John Tiger finally found his family. A few years ago, at the age of 70, he signed up for 23andMe, that online DNA ancestry tool, and he started to look for his family. John was adopted at a young age. He knew he was from Pittsburgh originally, and he knew the name of his mother, which was on his birth certificate. But having been told by his adoptive parents that he was the product of an affair, he never sought her out. And after some investigation and exploration into birth certificates and death certificates and online profiles, he thought his last name was actually Sesta. And then he thought it was Gigliotti. And then he thought it could be Rospansky. And then possibly Rosparsky. He found after that a more complete record of his mother and was attached with a sister. He reached out to his sister and was connected to a brother. And at the age of 70, John met his brother in a Denny's restaurant and he finally learned about his family. John's brother was eight years older than he was and he remembered the day that John was taken away. And their meeting ended with his brother singing happy birthday to John. As a child, he had always waited for baby Jack to come back on his birthday. Your family is one of the most substantial pieces of your identity. Our family shapes us in profound ways, ways that we don't even completely recognize. And there is an internal longing for so many people to understand their family lineage. I wonder how you would describe your family. Some of you might think about your family and consider them to be loving and healthy and strong. Others come from highly dysfunctional families and carry a bunch of hurt with that dysfunction. And for many of us, we might describe our family somewhere in between healthy and strong and highly dysfunctional. But one thing is for sure, that every single family is unique. Different personalities, different experiences, different history, different genetics. The draw that people have to understand their family is incredibly powerful because family is part of our identity. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus talks about the nature of his family. And I want to ask you to turn your attention with me to Mark chapter 3 this morning. We're going to read verses 7 through 35. We'll spend most of our time in the second half, in verses 20 through 35, as Jesus speaks about the markers of the identity of his family. And as we read, I want to ask you to notice the different characters and their different responses to Jesus. You're going to see in this account some people who think they are part of the family of God, but they really aren't. You're going to see others who want to draw near to Jesus and maybe be part of that family, but they don't know if they can. You are going to see some people who are part of Jesus' physical family, but possibly not part of his true family. And then you are going to see 
those who Jesus says are really part of his family. And it begs the question, all of the interactions, all of the characters, all of their responses, all lead to the question for you. Are you part of his family? Are you sure? How can you know for sure? Let's read Mark chapter three together. Starting at verse seven. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him. For, they had healed, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired And they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, the sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, whom betrayed him. And then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those whom sat around him, 
he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' ministry is expanding. And right away, you can see a very interesting observation as people respond to him. Those who are far away from him are pursuing him and drawing near. And those who are near to him are actually pushing him away. And somewhere in the middle, you have his disciples, his true followers. First, consider with me the different ways people respond. There are those who are far off who are drawing near. And you see that in the expression of the crowd. Some of these people might want to be part of God's family, but they're not sure they can be. They are experiencing wonder and awe and fear because Jesus is performing miracles among them. And these miracles cause these great crowds to begin to follow him. The miracle worker was in town. People were being delivered from what ailed them. Jesus was shown to do things that no one else could do. And as a result, you might categorize the scene as an excited mob. Everywhere he went, those who had a problem were pressing up against him with just the hope that they could touch him. And the crowd pressed so hard that Jesus had his disciples devise an exit strategy via a boat. This was more than the popularity of a modern day singer after a concert. This was more popularity than you would see from autograph signers waiting outside the stadium after the big game. People's lives were being transformed and changed. And they wanted more. We don't know who they thought Jesus was, but they wanted the benefit of being close to him. The ones who were far off were drawing near. And then comes an interesting string of accusations. And these accusations from different people all culminate in a single question. And the question is this, who is my mother and my brothers and my sister. Who is the family of Jesus? He encounters the demons very quickly, verse 11, and they give the accusation, you are the son of God. Wonder captured the crowd. Fear captured the demons as they make an orthodox proclamation that Jesus is indeed the son of God. But even though they know that he is the son of God in their mind and they believe it to be true in their actions, they make no claim to follow him. Instead, these spirits tremble in recognition and they remain far away. And then you have his family who says that he's out of his mind. And here Mark introduces this family and then he interrupts the story about the family with the story about the scribes and then he goes back to the story about the family again. Mark does this a lot through the gospel. He sandwiches things together. And he does that to help us to understand that the story about the scribes, the thing in the middle, is the point 
and it helps inform how Jesus looks at his family. And so look with me, verses 20, 21. His family shows up on the scene. They're not fond of the notoriety that Jesus is receiving. There's controversy surrounding his earthly ministry. And it says they went to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Clearly, what's happening here is not normal behavior. Those who knew him the best would say. The ones closest to him cry out, he's crazy. And the word used here to seize is literally to physically restrain him. His brothers were trying to physically restrain Jesus because they thought he was out of his mind. His family, the ones who were closest to him, are actually the ones who are far off in their understanding of him. Proximity to Jesus doesn't guarantee faith in Jesus. And friends, that's something that you and me need to take to heart. Proximity to Jesus doesn't guarantee faith in Jesus. There's an implicit warning there. You can be near to Jesus, but still not be part of his true family. You can do religious things and not be part of his true family. Proximity to Jesus doesn't guarantee faith in Jesus. It's not enough to be around the periphery of this king. Genuine surrender to him and repentance from our sin and following him is the marker. And so we've seen three responses already. The crowd says, heal me. He can heal me. They are far off and coming near. The demons say, he is the son of God. They are far off and they continue to stay far off. And his family says he's out of his mind. Those who are near, who are actually pushing him away. And from there you see the most sinister of accusations and the most sinister opposition. And it comes from the religious leaders of the day. It's the scribes and they say, he is of the devil. Look at verse 22 with me. These scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. He's possessed by Beelzebub. He's possessed by the devil. Now, if anyone should be near to Jesus, it should be his physical family. And yet they accuse him of being crazy and they pull away or push him away. If anybody should be near to Jesus, it would be, it should be the religious leaders of the day. Their function was to facilitate the worship of God. And Jesus was God. And he's right there in their midst. And that's the peculiar thing about this whole interaction in this passage. Those who are supposed to be near are actually far away and those who are far away are the ones who are drawing near. 
They are saying that Jesus' work is the work of the devil. There isn't a worse accusation than that. They accuse him of playing for the opposite team, of being a double agent, of working against the purposes of God. They accuse all of his activities as he's going from place to place and displaying divine power to have that power sourced from the devil himself. And so you see, that faith is not the automatic response of people who see miraculous acts of God. Some love those miracles of God, but they don't have faith. Others misascribe that source of the power in ways that can only be described as the direct opposite of faith. And so Jesus gives them two reasons why they're wrong, and then he gives them a warning before he goes back to talk about his family. Reason number one why Jesus can't be from Satan. A house divided against itself will not stand. And you see that in verses 23 and 24 and 25 and on. The logic is very simple. I can't be from Satan because a kingdom divided itself against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan is divided against himself, he cannot stand. Pretty simple. Reason number two, Jesus can't be from Satan because he is the stronger man. He uses this allegory of the strong man to describe his work against Satan. The strong man is Satan and his possessions in his house are people, people who he has captured as his own to do his will, who live in darkness, who are under the lordship of the Lord of the earth, the devil himself, some of whom are actually possessed by demons. Jesus is the stronger man who binds the strong man, rescues the people, frees those possessions from Satan and looses those who are demon-possessed from those demons. Now those people who he rescued can enjoy light and follow their new Lord and God and have a life that is lived to the full and as he will show in a minute, they can even become part of his family. Friends, that's a picture of salvation for all of us. Before you knew Christ, you were possessed by the strong man. You were under his ownership in that regard. Some of you displayed that through just your ongoing selfishness. Others of us through our struggles and sin. Others of us with a complete disregard for what is good and holy and right. But the stronger man came. <laughs> He bound Satan, he rescued you to himself, and he gives you the opportunity to become part of his family. Talk about people who are far off, drawing near. That's the picture. And then he gives a warning. He gives a warning about the blasphemy of the spirit. And it's a two-edged sword of both good news and bad news. Look at it with me. He says in verse 28 through 30, the good news is this. All the sins will be forgiven of the children of man, all of them, and whatever blasphemies they utter. We know that the broader message of the gospels is that 
Forgiveness, regardless of the sin, regardless of the words, regardless of the thoughts, regardless of your violent posture against God, forgiveness will come to those who put their faith in Jesus as the Son of God, and he's already paid for those sins now on the cross. That's the price. The good news here is that there is hope for any of you through Jesus, that your sins are forgivable. But there is one sin that's not forgivable. He says in verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And so what is blasphemy against the Spirit and how do you know if you've committed it or not? This is a question that I get asked all the time. And it's actually good that people ask it all the time because it shows that they care about their standing with God. Remember the context because it helps unlock the meaning. Jesus is doing the work of God. It's meant to display his power and glimpses of his glory so that people would recognize him as their savior. Physical healings point to his ability to eternally heal. Casting out of demons point to the opportunity for lasting purity apart from dark forces that is found in him. But some are attributing this work to the devil. And that last part is key because that helps us understand what he means by this blasphemy. Verse 30 gives us the ground of why Jesus says this. It says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So blaspheming the spirit then is not just resisting the work of the spirit in an ongoing and active way. It is also resisting the work of the spirit in unbelief and actively attributing that work to Satan. Let me say it again. Blaspheming the spirit is resisting the work of the spirit in unbelief and attributing that work to the devil. Proclaiming that the good things from God are indeed from the devil, that the saving work of God is from the devil, that the eternal deliverance that Jesus offers is actually evil in its nature. That's blaspheming the spirit. And friends, time fails this morning to allow us to go down this rabbit hole further. Because we could spend a lot of time doing some cultural analysis right now and thinking about all of the ways that people proclaim that good things are actually evil and evil things are actually good. We could think of a lot of ways where people attribute things of God to things that are actually harmful or even originate with the devil. But we're not gonna do that. Isaiah chapter 5 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to them. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So we see his physical family is not his real family. They are pushing him away. The ones who should be his spiritual family 
are not his real family. They are blaspheming the spirit. And so we ask the question, who is the real family of Jesus? And he tells us in verse 31. Look at the dynamic that's developing. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brother are outside seeking you. In verse 31, it says that they are calling him. It's really interesting up to this point in the gospel of Mark, there's only one person who's doing the calling and it's Jesus. As he calls people men and women and boys and girls to come follow him as he calls them to repent of their sin and to believe as he calls disciples up onto the mountain to be with him that he might send them out eventually. But now here his family is calling him to follow them. Moreover, you see that they're looking for him or seeking him. That word looking for him is used 10 times in the Gospel of Mark and every single time it's used to convey that someone is trying to gain some kind of control over Jesus. So in this instance, you have his family that's trying to assert a claim over him. It's as if they're saying, Jesus, you are one of us. You are are part of this family. You need to come follow us. This is one of the major parts of your identity. Come back now and follow us. And the posture of these family members is like the posture of some who would follow him later. They think that Jesus owes them something as part of this family. And so being told that his family is outside, this family who thinks he's crazy, by the way, he responds with some words that are as insulting to his mother as they would be to your mother or mine. Who is my mother and my brothers and my sister? Seeing his deeds doesn't mean that you're part of his family. Being in close proximity doesn't mean that you're part of his family. Even having the earthly relationship to him does not mean you are part of his family. So who is part of his family? He says, looking to those around him, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Faith in the Son of God and doing the will of God show that you are part of the family of God. Faith in the Son of God and doing the will of God show that you are part of the family of God. And it's interesting, elsewhere you see the call to believe, to have faith, to repent, to believe. But here the focus that Jesus makes is on doing God's will. But friends, we don't need to separate these two things because they are one in the same. You can't do God's will unless you believe in Jesus as the son of God. 
And you can't believe in Jesus as the son of God without then continuing to do God's will. There's no such thing as believing in Jesus without following him in obedience. If there was, then the demons all the way back in verse 11 would be part of the family. But they're not. They believe, but they don't do anything. Faith in the Son of God and doing the will of God shows that you are part of the family of God. The ones who are supposed to be close are not. The ones who are far off can draw near and become part of his true family. He contrasts the crowd who sees the miracles, the family who accuses him as crazy, the scribes who claim that he's of Satan, but he calls somebody. He calls his disciples who make no claims over him, but are commissioned to do his will. They will be the ones who follow him. They will be the ones to preach. They will have his authority. And so it will be with all of those who follow him. So it will be with you. Faith in the son of God and doing the will of God show that you are part of the family of God. His family. Family, the most important relationships in life. The identity forming relationships. Relationships that spread all the way back into the past and all the way forward into the future. What does it mean to be part of the family of God? This is one of the biggest threads throughout the whole Bible for those who have faith in him. John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13 says, Yet to all who received him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. Or 1 John 3, 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Or Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, that says, but to the one who make men holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And he's not ashamed to call you brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And that's just a taste. Part of God's family. Followers of Jesus are spoken as sons of God, as becoming sons of God through adoption, as gaining the status as co-heirs with Christ and to have him as their heavenly father. You can be part of that family. Friends, the application and the good news around this is wonderful and it's profound. If this is true, then this means that the family of God has no impossible barrier to entry. I could want to be part of your family, but there's an impossible barrier to entry. I don't share your blood. You can treat me like a family member. You can adopt me as a family member, but I won't be truly part of the family. There is no barrier to this family that's impossible to overcome. This means that this is possible for anyone who has faith to enter, regardless of sin, regardless of blasphemies, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of how far off they were. This means that regardless of how dysfunctional your earthly family is, 
And I know there are plenty of our families that are really dysfunctional and we carry a ton of hurt and difficulty with that. That there is a family that is eternal in its nature that is willing to welcome you in and you will have the benefit of a perfect loving father who leads this family for the purposes of his good pleasure. This means that obedience is part of this family relationship. The one who does God's will, Jesus says, which means that the one who says they believe but then lives in contradiction to God's will needs to watch out lest they have a false assurance, lest they are the one who is near in proximity but is actually very far away. Friends, I so desperately do not want you to fall into that category. Who's near in proximity but actually far away because obedience is part of this family relationship. It's the flip side of the coin of faith. Mark Twain encountered a ruthless businessman from Boston during his travels who boasted that nobody ever got in his way once he decided to do something. He said, before I die, I'm going to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I'm going to climb Mount Sinai. I am going to read the Ten Commandments aloud at the top of my lungs. And unimpressed, Twain responded, I got a better idea. Why don't you just stay in Boston and keep them? Because a lot of people like to talk about obedience, but actually living it is much more difficult. For some of us, obedience will be hard at some points. For some of us, it will automatically grate against our personal desires and our self-determination. And for some of us, we might even feel like it's impossible. It's impossible for us to obey. Or God clearly didn't see that circumstance coming. And so now I have to adjust in what is actually disobedience, but I think is the right thing to do. Or I feel so terribly unfulfilled that I need to explore new avenues of life that go against God so that I can be fulfilled because God wouldn't want me to be unhappy, would he? I think about the story that came out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina a number of years ago. It was a likely clerical error that sent a supply clerk for the 82nd Airborne out of the door of an airplane in his first parachute jump without any formal training. Army specialist Jeff Lewis was 23 years old at the time. He landed unhurt and he said that he was just doing what a good soldier is supposed to do when he made the jump. Follow orders. The army said I was airborne qualified, Lewis said. I wasn't going to question it. Friends, you might feel like God's instructions to you are not possible. You might feel like they're a mistake and they don't apply to you. But make no mistake. If the Lord commands, he empowers. And if he empowers, he empowers to the point of obedience. This means that faith in the Son of God and doing the will of God show that you are part of the family of God. 
This also means that to be part of Jesus' family means that you'll be open to accusation, suspicion, and eventual suffering. Those who follow him will have the same types of accusations that he has. It will inevitably be yours to some degree or another. And finally, this means that there is a warning because many will wonder and fear that they've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. But the fact that they're even asking the question is a pretty good indication that they haven't. This warning is for the hard and jaded who stand in direct opposition to Jesus and make it very clear which family they want to be a part of. And it's not his. It's the other family. Faith in the Son of God and doing the will of God show that you are part of the family of God. And everybody has a strong desire to be understood and to understand in their identity, to be part of a family. This reality was on display more than ever in the year 2017. Throughout the 2000s, direct-to-consumer genetic testing through companies like Ancestry.com and 23andMe continued to grow. But in 2017, they hit a major inflection point. That year, the one year, the industry doubled as a nearly 12 million users participated in mail-in DNA testing. And guess what they attribute part of that success to? They figured out that marketing the product as a genetic test for health reasons was not nearly as attractive to marketing the tests to help you find out your lineage and your ancestry and your family. It wasn't enough to learn about ourselves in isolation. People learned about themselves and how they fit into a family structure and a family tree. Friends, you can know for sure. You can know for sure what family you are a part of. Faith in the Son of God and doing the will of God show that you are part of the family of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can indeed call you Father through the Lord Jesus that you make a way for us to be part of your family. God, I pray for those who are indeed part of your family today that they would have wonderful awe and confidence in you as their father and immense gratitude in your son Jesus and that you would continue to compel us toward doing your will for the sake of our good and your glory. Father, I pray today for any here who don't know if they're part of your family or maybe are now getting the sense as they hear this that they might not be part of your family. Even though they are very near in proximity, they might be far off in reality. God, let today be the day of repentance from sin, of clinging to a savior, of entering into a family and seeking to do 
your will. Let today be the day where they recognize Jesus is the Lord and the King and you as our Heavenly Father. Let today be the day where family lineage and identity can be formed and shaped because of your son. Father, we thank you for these good things. We thank you, we thank you for helping us to know who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.